Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, U.S. stocks finished out the week on a strong note. In fact, we broke a three-week losing streak. This was the first time in four weeks that the major averages finished higher on the week. And, you know, when I recorded my podcast earlier in the week, uh, the week was off to a rough start. But we had a turnaround. In fact, today, the Dow Jones was up 319 points on the day. It's about 1.2% gain. The NASDAQ up even more, up 106 points. That's 1.34%. The Russell 2000, even better, up 1.8%. The Dow Transports were the stars of the day. They were up 2.23%, 224 points. Look at stocks like Apple rising almost 3% to a new all-time record high. Uh, for Apple. And there was a lot of news that was driving the market today. Initially, we got rumors of some type of Brexit deal that potentially was imminent. And of course, there's been all sorts of rumors that have never panned out regarding a Brexit deal. But this this morning, it was a rumor that really was causing a lot of buying in the European markets. And that spilled over into the U.S. futures, which helped the U.S. markets. And of course, there was a lot of brewing optimism over some type of impending trade deal with China, although that news didn't come out until very close to the close. But then earlier in the day, we got the consumer sentiment number for October and the markets were already higher by the time we got this release which comes out at 10 a.m. the market opens at 9:30 and the prior month was 93.2 and the consensus was for a slight drop in consumer sentiment to 92 after all there's a lot of reasons for consumers to be less optimistic now than they were back then but the consumer surprised and ended up being more optimistic. The number came out at 96, and that sent the price of uh, stocks much higher. Gold, which was already down, made fresh lows on the day in reaction to the better-than-expected uh, consumer sentiment because this index is regarded as important because it measures uh, whether or not the consumer is confident enough to go deeper into debt and keep buying stuff that he can't afford. And assuming the consumer is so confident, then everything is great because the spending continues and the GDP continues. But of course, you know, if you look back historically, the consumer is never smart enough to be pessimistic when he should. He's always very optimistic just before a major economic decline. That was the case leading up to the 2008 financial crisis and the Great Recession. Before that crisis began, consumers were very optimistic. After all, they had all this home equity. They expected housing prices to continue to rise. So everything was good. And the consumer was confident. The consumer was completely blindsided by the events of 2008. And then confidence imploded 
Well, I expect the same thing to happen again. I don't think the consumer is any smarter now than he was back then, nor are Wall Street investors. But, you know, another thing that even happened today, too, to add fuel to the uh, to the market's fire was the Bank of New York, Federal Reserve Bank of New York, basically coming out and laying out its non-quantitative easing program. They actually claimed that the Fed is going to be buying $60 billion a month worth of uh, treasuries or short-term treasuries on a monthly basis, I mean, going into maybe the middle of 2020. Now, of course, don't confuse this with quantitative easing when the Fed was buying uh, $85 billion a month uh, of treasuries because this is no way quantitative easing except, of course, that's exactly what it is. And in fact, not only is the Federal Reserve now telegraphing a plan right, to actually uh, expand its balance sheet by a set amount month after month. But the Fed reiterated that all of the interest that it earns on its portfolio of almost $4 trillion now in treasuries, but all the interest that it earns, it's going to use that interest to buy more treasuries. This is in addition to that $60 billion. And, of course, any treasury that matures – that the Fed owns, it's going to take that money and immediately buy more treasuries. So it's not going to let anything roll over. So it's clear that the balance sheet has stopped shrinking and now it's about to rise again. Again, proving that Ben Bernanke was either lying or incompetent when he told Congress back in 2009 that the Fed was not monetizing the debt, that it was only buying it temporarily and that it was going to sell it so that it wasn't really monetizing the debt, because to really monetize the debt, you have to permanently hold on to the debt that you buy. Well, of course, that's exactly what the Fed is proving it has done, because the debt that it owns is never going to be sold. In fact, if any of it matures, the Fed is simply going to roll it over and buy more bonds, and any interest payments they earn will just be used to buy even more bonds. So this has been a permanent debt monetization, the exact opposite of what Ben Bernanke claimed he was doing. I wonder, you know, I wonder if it's a crime. I mean, because he was probably under oath when he testified before Congress. So maybe, maybe he should be charged with something. Although, of course, maybe he was actually so naive that he actually believed what he was saying. Because if he had come right out at that time and said, well, we're going to buy these bonds permanently, we're just going to permanently increase our balance sheet well, then maybe nobody would have gone along with it. Maybe they wouldn't have allowed it to happen. It was only because everybody believed that it was temporary and that they were going to be able to sell the bonds that they went along with it. But of course, there I was, a lone voice, screaming as loud as I could, he's not telling the truth. That's not going to happen. These bonds are never going to be sold. This is permanent debt monetization. Ben Bernanke was wrong, just like he always is, just like he was wrong about how how there wasn't a financial crisis coming, how the housing market was sound. I mean, how many things did Ben Bernanke get wrong? Just about everything, yet he's still regarded as some genius that saved us from the Great Recession that he helped cause and the financial crisis that he helped cause. Meanwhile, nobody in the mainstream wants to recognize me or the validity of anything that I said, even though I was one of the only people at the time who not only predicted the crisis in advance, but when the central bank came out with quantitative easing and pretended that it was temporary and pretended that they would reverse it, I came out and said, that's not true. It's not temporary, it's permanent, and it will never be reversed. Well, you know, the markets still haven't even come to terms 
with what that means because they're still very accepting of whatever the Fed says. They can make up any excuse and they're never held accountable. But meanwhile, when you have this announcement, plus, of course, in addition to that $60 billion and uh, the um, rolling over of the maturing bonds and any of the interest, the Fed also reiterated that it's going to continue with its um, repo agreements that it's been doing. In fact, we got the numbers on the Fed's balance sheet on Thursday, and surprisingly, it only grew by about three or four billion. But that did bring the four-week total uh, to 180 billion dollars of uh, balance sheet expansion in just four weeks, which is a lot of QE, especially when you're claiming you're not doing any at all. But I think if you add up all of the buying that the Fed is claiming it's going to now do on a monthly basis. It seems like the non-QE4 is around $100 billion a month of QE. And I believe that it's actually going to be much bigger than that because I think the Federal Reserve is going to find that it has to monetize more and more debt if it wants to keep interest rates from going up, which, of course, is what it wants to do. It wants to make sure that we don't have to pay the price of these huge deficits, because normally if you run massive deficits, if everybody is borrowing and nobody is saving, the consequences that interest rates go up. But of course, the consequences are not pleasant for a lot of people that have a lot of debt. So the Federal Reserve is trying to uh, spare the economy uh, from suffering those consequences. But unfortunately, things get worse. It's like if you were to, uh, you know, sprain your ankle and then let's say you're a football player, maybe you sprain your ankle. Maybe what you should do is not play for the rest of the game because you've injured your ankle. And if you keep uh, playing on it, you could do more damage. And in fact, when you hurt your ankle, there's going to be some pain there. And the pain is telling you to, you know, get off your foot, lie down because, you know, you, you bruised your, your ankle here and the pain is a signal that your brain is sending you, hey, lay off this foot, right? You're damaging it. But then if you shoot yourself up with some kind of drugs so you don't feel the injury and you get back on the field and play anyway, well, maybe you can end up doing more damage, right? So, you know, interest rates, higher interest rates, even though it may be painful for debtors, it's sending a message, hey, you got too much debt, stop borrowing, Pay down this debt, right? That's what higher interest rates, that's what that pain is saying in the economy. It's telling politicians, hey, you're driving up borrowing costs. Cut government spending. You're spending too much money. You're borrowing too much money. You got to stop because you're pushing up interest rates. But what the Fed wants to do is make sure that no one feels the pain of their bad decisions. And so they keep on making those bad decisions. They make more of them. And ultimately, you need more and more Novocaine to try to prevent anybody from feeling the pain, but eventually they can't do that, right? Because you're going to end up killing the patient and that's where we're going to be. In fact, interest rates were up today, right? We had a pretty big backup uh, in long-term interest rates, but I think that the announcement of this QE was another factor in driving demand for stocks because pretty much like Pavlov's dog, investors are conditioned to buy stocks on QE. And whether or not the Fed wants to admit that this is QE, the markets can see what it is and they're doing what they did in response to prior QEs. They just don't understand that this time it's not going to end well because the success, and I put that in, uh, in quotes, the success of QE was completely predicated on the fact that it was temporary and it was reversible. 
Well, soon people are going to realize that neither of those is true, and it's not going to be a success. It's going to be a complete failure. Meanwhile, some people may be uh, taking solace in the fact that rates are now rising on the long end, and the yield curve is no longer inverted. And they think, oh, I guess we dodged that bullet, right? We're not going to have a recession now because the yield curve is no longer inverted. And, you know, I think that's not true. In fact, it's probably just as likely, if not more so, that rising interest rates are going to help exacerbate. Uh, the recession. In fact, we inverted simply because the Fed was wrong and the markets correctly anticipated that the Fed was wrong. But now that the Fed has kind of come around, even though it hasn't admitted it, the markets know the Fed is going to print more money. They're going to do more QE. And that is inflationary. And that is driving up long-term interest rates. And as I've been saying from the beginning, what is going to make this coming recession so much worse is that it's going to be an inflationary recession and it's going to be a recession where interest rates rise, not where interest rates fall. And that's another thing that's going to make this recession so much more painful because instead of being relieved uh, with lower rates, which is something that helps people during a recession, right, because now they can refinance their mortgage and other interest payments go down, instead of having the, the salvation, right, the consolation of, oh, maybe I lost my job, but at least, you know, my mortgage rate went down. Instead of that, you're going to have higher interest rates and you're going to have higher prices too, right? Unemployment and rising prices, stagflation. And of course, this is the environment that none of the stress tests bothered to measure. Remember, all of the stress tests that the Federal Reserve designed and administered to the banks assumed that in the next recession, interest rates went down. There wasn't a single stress test that put a bank under the stress of interest rates rising in a weak economy. And of course, the reason they didn't test for that is because they probably knew that every bank would fail. So why administer a test that you know everybody's going to fail? The purpose of the test is propaganda to try to paint a rosier picture of the health of the, of the banks than is really the case. So they never even tested for that environment. Now, of course, it's also possible that the people at the Fed don't even believe that that's possible. They think the situation of a recession with rising rates can never happen. Even though it's happened before, somehow they have the hubris to think they've got it under control and it's never going to happen again. But apart from the Brexit rumors and the consumer confidence, what was really, I think, driving the market was all the optimism over this trade deal, right? I mean, they were talking about this trade deal yesterday. They were talking about this morning. In fact, at one point, I think the Dow Jones was up almost 500 uh, points. It's like 470, 480, something like that. And it actually sold off near the end of the day once the news came out of this trade deal. And again, I've been saying since the beginning that I didn't really think Trump was going to be able to deliver a trade deal. And despite what he said today, I still stand by that prediction. I don't think we're getting a deal, at least not a deal that's anywhere like the deal that he promised. It's not a deal that's going to live up to the hype. It's going to be a nothing. Trump will have accomplished nothing with a trade deal. But whatever he does accomplish, it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be the greatest because that is his marketing style. Remember, it's just like Trump steaks. 
They're the greatest stakes in the world. So this deal is going to be the greatest trade deal in the world, the greatest deal ever negotiated by the greatest negotiator in the history of mankind. That's how Trump is going to spin this thing. Now, if you recall, it wasn't too long ago, I don't know, a month ago, two months ago, but there were some rumors that Trump denied that there was some kind of interim trade deal in the works, right? And then Trump came out and said, no, 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 we're not going to go for any kind of interim deal. It's one deal or no deal. I'm not going to get suckered into that, right? I'm not going to let the Chinese off the hook with some interim deal, right, where they never follow through. You know, it's the whole deal or no deal. I'm going to keep the pressure on. I'm going to keep the tariffs on there. I want a complete deal. This is going to be a great deal. It's going to be a huge deal, and it's going to be all at once. That's what he, he claimed he wanted. Well, today, after all this anticipation, Donald Trump actually came out and he said, we have a fantastic deal. This is an incredible deal. Uh, it's phase one. Phase one. We're, well, that's the first time I've ever heard about phase one. And now we started talking about phase two and phase three. So wait a minute. All of a sudden, the deal is going to be in phases? And he's now claiming credit because now we got phase one? What the hell is phase one? You know, it's like it's like almost giving you a trade deal and then taking it away. I mean, maybe in one respect, he was worried about the buy the rumor, sell the fact, right? That if he actually delivered the entire deal, that the markets would sell off after having anticipated it for so long. And so now maybe the markets don't collapse because, hey, it's not really the deal because wait till you see phase two. And then phase three is going to be even better. So maybe Trump is going to keep people anticipating these phases. I mean, maybe we don't get phase two until after he's reelected or phase three or how many phases there's going to be. But this is a complete 180 from the Donald Trump who said, no preliminary deal, one deal, that's it, all the way done to all of a sudden, we got a great deal for phase one. And what is phase one? Because I don't even think the deal is signed. I mean, I don't think anything has actually been agreed to, but Donald Trump is talking about all this great stuff that has been agreed to. In fact, the one thing that he also said too, he was asked about the Fed. And he said, well, the Fed should still cut rates. Even if we have this great deal, we still need more rate cuts. Why? Why do we need more? If we got this great deal, we have the greatest economy ever, and now it's going to be even greater because of this great deal. We need even more rate cuts. But the reason that Trump said we needed more rate cuts is because the rates in Germany are lower than they are here. Well, first of all, the rates in Germany have pretty much always been lower than the United States. I mean, you go back over the last 30, 40 years, the German rates have pretty much always been lower than the U.S. rates. That's the problem. In fact, one of the reasons that the German rates are so low is because our rates are so low. You know, because Germany, these, these fools in Germany don't want the euro to go up. That's the, same, that's the same nonsense that's all over the world. So when you got the U.S. dollar with rates so low, I mean, yes, they're nominally positive, but they're negative in any real sense. If you need to keep your rates lower than the U.S. to prevent uh, your currency from going up, which is a fool's errand, but this is what these fools are trying to do. When the U.S. is so low, the only way that Germany could be lower really is to be negative. Now, I think ultimately this is going to change, but you know, two wrongs don't make a right. And again, if you're, you know, if your friend jumps off a bridge, that doesn't mean you do it too. I mean, Germany, Europe is making a mistake by keeping rates too low. And just because they're making that mistake doesn't mean we should repeat it. Of course, we're going to repeat it. We are repeating it. And rates are coming down, not because we have a great economy, but because we have a great bubble. And the only way to try to sustain the bubble is by blowing more air into it. And the way the Fed blows air into the bubble is by lowering rates and doing quantitative easing. And that's exactly what it's doing, whether it wants to admit it or not. But, you know, what did Trump talk about? 
uh, with respect to this deal. I mean, first of all, he was very flattering of the Chinese. He kept complimenting them on what great negotiators they were. You know, oh, they're so great. And he kept talking about this great relationship that we now have with China and everything is good and all the, you know, all the bad blood is gone and we've all, you know, uh, you know, it's a big kumbaya and, and they, they're great negotiators or we're great negotiators and whatever we negotiated, it's the greatest for everybody. Everybody wins in this deal. And meanwhile, we haven't heard anything from the Chinese. We just heard from Donald Trump. And of course, you know, a lot of times Donald Trump says stuff and then the Chinese say, well, we didn't agree to that. So what did Trump talk about? Because I was listening to the press conference and one of the things that Trump talked about was agriculture, right? This is going to be the greatest agriculture deal. And he said that the Chinese were committed to buying 40 to $50 billion a year worth of U.S. agriculture. Now, of course, Trump has been throwing these numbers around for a long time. And every time he does, the Chinese come back and said, we, we never agreed to that. But anyway, Trump is saying 40 or $50 billion, And he claims right now they're only buying about $7 billion worth of our agriculture. So this is going to be a big deal. He's saying it's the biggest order ever and American farmers had better buy some more land. They better buy some more tractors. They better get ready because they're going to have to grow a lot of food to fill this order because this is huge, right? 40 to 50 billion. Well, first of all, I don't know that the Chinese have actually agreed to do this because again, you know, China by and large is a market economy, even though they're not a democracy, right? There's still a market economy, uh, maybe more so than we are. And, you know, the Chinese consumer is going to buy what he wants. I mean, how is Beijing going to force uh, the Chinese to buy 40 or $50 billion a year worth of U.S. agriculture? I mean, how would we do that? How would, how would Trump, if he wanted to make a deal and, and said, oh, Americans are going to buy X, how, how does he... How does he accomplish that? I mean, maybe to the extent that the Chinese government has a procurement office for maybe it's government cafeterias or maybe for the schools or certain things, you know, it can buy more U.S. agriculture. I mean, maybe it can adjust tax policy or, you know, give a subsidy or something or to encourage uh, consumers to buy more products from America at the expense of buying products from some other country. I mean, why are in other countries upset? Because after all, I mean, the Chinese are not going to eat any more food, right? I mean, they can only eat so much. So if the Chinese are going to start buying more food from America, who are they going to stop buying food from? I mean, they're going to have to, you know, import less from other countries. I mean, are these countries going to be upset that the United States is forcing China to buy more food uh, from America and then buy less food from farmers in other countries? Because that's the only thing they can do unless the Chinese are just going to eat a lot more and get a lot fatter. Right. Whatever they buy from America is something that they don't buy from someplace else, right? Because I don't think they're just, it's not going to, it's going to be about, well, we're going to buy the food that Chinese farmers uh, used to farm. We're just going to put our own farmers out of work so we can buy more stuff from America. No, I'm sure this is all about imports and whatever they import from the United States is something they can't import from someplace else. But even if the Chinese end up buying more agriculture, because maybe they have, they put some tariffs on our agriculture that they can remove, right, and take away a disincentive from buying American agriculture. They can certainly buy more, but I doubt they're going to be buying 40 to $50 billion uh, a year. But if they were, if the Chinese actually were to buy that much U.S. agriculture, and if the president is right, if right now they're buying about $7 billion and they jump up to 40 or $50 billion, what is that going to do to the price of food in the United States? I mean, you would think it would soar. 
because it's all about supply and demand. And if the Chinese take that much supply off of the domestic market, remember, Americans have to eat too, right? And we can't eat what we export to China. And if our exports grow that much, that is going to push up the price of agriculture in the United States. It's going to push up the price of the crops, right? And then it's going to push up the price of cattle, right, which have to eat the crops. So all of our food is going to get a lot more expensive if China actually does what Trump claims they're going to do. Now, I guess maybe the Federal Reserve is going to be happy about this. You know, core prices, core CPI is already up um, 2.4% year over year, but the headline number is a little lower. One of the reasons is because gas prices were coming down and food prices were coming down. But as a result of a trade deal with China and oil prices were up quite a bit today too, but we could see a big increase in food and energy, which means the headline number is really going to start heading north. We could easily start printing numbers above 3%. Now, I remember I mentioned on the last podcast uh, that um, Powell said that, well, he was unhappy that we didn't have enough inflation. Well, be careful what you wish for because he's going to get it potentially if the Chinese do what Trump is claiming they're going to do. Now, you know, If Trump had claimed from the onset that the goal of the China trade war was uh, to sell more agriculture to China so that Americans had to pay higher prices for food, I mean, I doubt many people would have uh, really been cheerleaders for this trade war. But it seems like that's really all that's going to be accomplished in phase one. Now, they're probably never going to be a phase two or phase three. I mean, phase one may be the only phase we actually get. Maybe all the teeth or all the enforcement provisions are going to be in some, you know, yet to be negotiated or announced phase. But if even higher agricultural purchases start, that's going to push up prices. That pushes up inflation. And that's also going to put more upward pressure on long-term interest rates. So we have rising interest rates. We have rising inflation. That is going to weaken the economy. And maybe these consumer sentiment numbers, which have been so high, if consumers start going to the grocery store and they start to see food prices going up and they start to see gasoline prices going up, maybe they won't be as confident as they are now. Now, there was one other uh, you know, aspect of the deal that Trump mentioned. And he said that he's worked out a negotiator, negotiated a deal where American banks, our, our big banks, our financial firms, will have better access to the Chinese market, right? So great news for the Chinese, right? The, the investment banks that loaded up on subprime mortgages and had to be bailed out in 2008, good news for China, they're coming to you, right? Now the Chinese are going to be able to get involved and all these, all these banks are going to be able to do wonders for the Chinese economy, just like they've done wonders for the U.S. economy. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Trump was bragging about how great this was. I mean, it almost sounds like a threat that we're sending our our, our uh, investment banks over to China. But, you know, it would have been better for us if we could have sent our lawyers over there. You know, we got a lot more lawyers per capita, probably 10 times, if not more, the number of lawyers than they have in China. We would, that would be a great trade deal for us if we could somehow get our lawyers over in China, right? So then our lawyers could screw up the Chinese economy instead of screwing up our economy. Uh, but unfortunately, the lawyers were left out of the uh, negotiation. I mean, I'm sure the Chinese were way too smart uh, to let the U.S. unload uh, their lawyers on on China. But other than that, other than, hey, we got a deal to open up uh, the Chinese market to U.S. investment banks and brokerages to come in there and get into the Chinese economy. And other than um, the Chinese 
agreeing supposedly to buy all this agriculture, which is something Trump has been saying the entire time, and the Chinese have pretty much denied it every time. That's it. I mean, he mentioned a little bit on intellectual property, but he didn't actually have any details. So I don't know if anything's actually there. He mentioned something about currency manipulation, but you know, not any real concrete uh, announcement about what's going to be done. I don't think anything has been agreed, but that's it. I mean, nothing has really happened. Nothing substantial. This is not the big deal that Trump has been promising, right? It's nothing like it. That's why Trump is making a lemonade out of these lemons because he's taking what he can get. He realizes that the big comprehensive game-changing deal that he has been promising and dangling in front of the markets for a couple of years He's not going to get it. And as we're getting closer to 2020 in the election year, he feels like he has to do something. So he comes up with this idea for phase one. I can at least agree to phase one and pretend I got a deal. And so let me do phase one and I'll talk about how great this is, even though I haven't really accomplished anything. But people can't really uh, point that out because after all, it's just phase one. So they can't say that I failed to live up to the hype because I'm telling them that this is just phase one, that all that great stuff that I've been promising since I've been elected, that's all coming. It's just coming in phase two or phase three. But the public completely forgets that not too long ago, Trump was saying, no way, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to allow that to happen. I'm not going to let the Chinese off the hook. Because the Chinese have agreed to phase one, whatever's there, Trump has now called off tariffs that were going to be implemented. See, Trump initially had a hard line. No, no, no. I'm not going to let these tariffs go. I'm not going to have some preliminary deal just so the tariffs don't you know, kick in and just you know, let the Chinese off the hook. I want to keep the pressure on because after all, he's thinking, well, the Chinese can just you know, pussyfoot around until 2020 and maybe I don't get reelected, right? And now they don't have to actually do anything. So Trump was going to hang tough. And he's completely changed that. And the public, you know, we'll see if the public buys it. But to me, this is very similar to the Fed, right? The Fed constantly says something and then does the opposite. The Fed says that they're not monetizing the debt. The Fed says that QE is temporary, right? They're going to normalize interest rates. And then they don't do it, right? But no one calls them out on it and says, wait a minute, this is not what you said. The Fed says that they're going to keep shrinking their balance sheet, that it's on autopilot. Right. Remember, for a while, I think it was um, Janet Yellen, she described quantitative tightening. It was going to be like watching paint dry. Right. It was going to be no big deal. We were going to be able to do this reverse QE, QT. We were being, the Fed was going to be able to shrink its balance sheet by $50 billion a month for years and years. Right. And it was going to be like watching paint dry. It wasn't going to be disruptive at all. Except it was extremely disruptive. You know, short-term interest rates spiked up in the repo markets like 10%. The Fed was forced back into an emergency QE, right? Everything the Fed has said it was going to do has been a lie, right? The Fed constantly has to change what it says. It has to constantly, you know, reinvent the wheel, move the goalposts, and then it presents, you know, its agenda or its policy. And then nobody comes back and says, wait a minute, but that's not what you said before. That's the opposite of what you said, right? Everybody, it's like they have a clean slate and they start fresh and nobody calls them out on it. Well, Trump is doing the same thing with trade, 
right? Nobody goes back and says, this is not what you promised initially. You're so excited about this, but you said you would never accept that before. Now you're acting like this is the greatest. I mean, Trump is now saying that, well, you know, this deal is so big and so great. There's no way we could just do it all at once. We need to do it in phases. Well, if we needed to do it in phases, why did you say so in the first place? He didn't say so in the first place because he's only saying it now because he's trying to save face. But it doesn't matter, right? Because the market's are hearing what they want to hear. They want to uh, embrace everything as if it's good news. They want to tune out and ignore all the bad news. I mean, that's probably what consumers are doing too, why they have uh, this uh, higher confidence number. But all this is an illusion, right? People are delusional. The investors are delusional. Uh, they're not looking beneath the surface of what is obvious, right? I mean, because it doesn't take much to peel back the layers and actually look what's there, but people have a vested interest in not knowing. Right. There's an old saying that uh, if you have a financial incentive not to understand something or if your livelihood is based on you not understanding something, well, then you're not going to understand it. And there's a lot of people on Wall Street whose livelihood is based on them not understanding what's actually going on, because if they understood what was going on, they'd be saying the same thing I am. They'd be preparing for the same thing that I am. But because they don't, because they're completely clueless, well, you know, they're, they, they, uh, they are going with this. Anyway, I still think, though, that even though, you know, we don't have a final deal, we have a phase one, there still could be a buy the rumor, sell the facts simply on the phase one and simply on traders, right? Looking at the fact that, okay, we didn't get the whole deal, but we got enough of a deal that we're going to sell because the market is close enough to the highs uh, that some selling could come in. Now, look, the price of gold, the price of gold pullback. And again, today, gold was under pressure from both the um, the prospects of a Brexit deal, right, which sent the pound higher. The pound was up over two cents today. This is one of the best days the pound's had in years, up 1.8%. So that put some downward pressure on gold. And then, of course, a big rise in the stock market, Dow up close to 500 points on one in one day. That put some downward pressure on gold. And the trade deal, right, that put some downward pressure on gold. Yet with all of the downward pressure on gold, Gold wasn't down very much. The price of gold finished down, but you know, not off, you know, well off the lows of the day. And we closed down at around 1488. So I don't know, maybe we were off about eight or nine bucks on the day. I mean, at one point we were down closer to $20 after we got the better than expected consumer sentiment number. But given how strong stocks were and how good this news was, the price of gold really hung out. Uh, pretty well. And I think silver prices were about unchanged on the day. So I think the metals market is showing us that this correction is over. And if all this bad news, because good news is bad news for precious metals. And if all this good news wasn't bad news for gold and silver, if it couldn't push these prices any lower, well, then they're probably going to go up, especially if people start to connect the inflationary dots here of what's going to happen, because this is all inflationary. It's more money printing that's going on. We're back to QE, right? The Fed is monetizing debt. It's doing all this QE. This is dollar negative. And the dollar was down today. And that is one thing that is good for gold is a weak dollar. Now, the other positive headlines trumped the weakness in the dollar today. But those headlines are going to be yesterday's news, right? The weak dollar could continue. In fact, I think, and I've been talking about this, the dollar is in the process of carving out a very significant top. It's taking longer than I thought to 
complete this uh, the topping pattern and break down. But the dollar index was down again today. It was down yesterday. We closed at 98.33. Remember, we had gotten above 99 uh, earlier in the week. So we're back at 98.33. But, you know, the chart to me looks like we're getting ready to break down in the dollar. And the, the first or the leading indicator rally of dollar weakness was gold strength. Gold has already broken out to the upside. And the fact that uh, people around the world and banks around the world are preferring gold to dollars. The fact that the dollar is weakening in terms of gold shows an underlying weakness in the dollar. And that weakness is going to manifest in the foreign exchange markets. And, you know, if for some reason this rumor of a Brexit deal is actually true, right, that takes uh, pressure off the pound. That's going to be negative for the dollar. And also that's going to create some more optimism for the European economy. That's going to take some buying out of the dollar. That's also going to help drive interest rates higher. Because if there's now more optimism over the European economy, well, now the central banks over there have less reason to do quantitative easing. Uh, than they did before. And so if people become more optimistic on the Eurozone based on a Brexit deal, then that puts more downward pressure on the U.S. dollar. And once the dollar really starts to break, then that's going to put the upward pressure on long-term interest rates, which is going to really uh, worsen the severity of this downturn because you can see what the Fed is doing to try to artificially suppress interest rates because the Fed obviously knows how dangerous higher interest rates are to an over-leveraged economy. But in order to keep those forces at bay, it needs to make sure that an over-leveraged economy gets even more over-leveraged in order to delay the pain. But once the dollar really starts to fall, uh, once inflation really starts to pick up, that's when uh, the game is over for the Fed. That's when it has to stop pretending and it really has to face up to uh, the reality of the choices that it has. And those choices are allow interest rates to rise sharply and have a worse financial crisis than 2008 or try to prevent that from happening and then turn uh, a weak dollar into a currency crisis and, and turn a financial crisis into a dollar crisis and a sovereign debt crisis, which has much more profound implications, uh, not only for the markets and the economy, but the entire American way of life. Mm -hmm.